Is Will explicitly trying to bait me into yelling about Nate Silver on this podcast? Because <laughs> what I is have your been... beef with Nate Silver Here. again? to What's Left of Philosophy. I am your co-host, William, and I am joined by Gil. Hi, Gil. Hello. Hello. Lillian. Hey there. Hi. And Owen. How are you doing, man? Hey, Will. How are you doing? So today we're going to be working on British cultural theorist Stuart Hall. I'm personally really excited for this episode because I think if you listen to our first episode, which if you haven't go quick, listen to it, picks up on a lot of the conversations we were engaging with with Althusser. So I wanted to talk about Stuart Hall because I think he gives us, you know, um, at least for me, two interesting questions to think about. One, he has this return to culture and he seems to be attending to this difficulty. So what is the relationship of Marxism to culture? What's the relationship of culture to popular struggle, to class struggle? Is culture simply a part of what's called the superstructure? So it's kind of a distraction. He thinks not. And so the first question that it seems like he's trying to attend to is how does one build popular power? Can one avoid the specificity of culture? And the second question he, he raises with him, his um, engagement with work uh, thinkers like Gramsci and Althusser is, you know, what methodology should we have as theorists when trying to understand our situation? We, we need to be able to move through what he calls different levels of abstraction to, to show how a situation specific, in other words. And so he calls this conjunctural. And so I was wondering if you know, we could begin this conversation with you know, the question of, so what is culture for Stuart Hall? Is this still workable for us? My initial inclination is to think that you know, in these lectures we're reading from 1983, culture is about an organization of a pattern of behavior, representations, and lifestyles. And he seems to think that that needs to be the ground from which we start thinking about how do people organize themselves? How do we understand how how they need to be organized. What do you all think? Well, I, I still think the the concept of culture that Stuart Hall uses is helpful because it casts, I think, a wider net than the concept of ideology. Like, obviously, there's a kind of consonance, right, in the way that he analyzes culture as a kind of, you know, an ideological, uh, a site of ideology, but it doesn't quite completely overlap with ideology. And so I think it's it's still a helpful category for bringing in phenomena which go beyond just like ideational content, just thoughts, and, and bringing in a wide set of social practices that form and allow us, or that inform a much more kind of comprehensive and full sense of what's called superstructure in Marxism, right? The the, you know that which instead of being epiphenomenal above economics, it actually being a kind of wide and diverse dispositive that you know in which a number of different forces meet. So I still think it's it's useful as a as a category because of that kind of broadening of the concept of ideology. 
Yeah, and I wanted to say this in the beginning because I think that this this is the quote that um, Lillian sent out when we agreed uh, to do Stuart Hall, which is it's this it's this idea that I think when a lot of people think of Stuart Hall, they think he was giving this you know general theory of culture, but you know in this lecture in 1983, which um, we are reading, he he writes quote. It is important to understand that the concept of culture is proposed not as an answer to some grand theoretical question, but as a response to a very concrete political problem and question. Quote, uh, the, the question is, what happened to the working class under conditions of economic affluence? End quote. And so I think it also has to be, so what is it that we think culture explains rather than culture only being like sort of a sociological notion of look at these people doing these things, rather can it give us political explanations for why struggle either appears or doesn't appear in p specific moments? Can yeah, I so ask like a stupid question? No, wait, I'll save my stupid question for after Gil says what he says. So, so in the in that that lecture series, right? He kind of gives us like a, a kind of genealogy or history of like the sources of cultural studies and where these concepts come from, and like he traces it back to literary criticism and sociology and anthropology, but also wants to say that like the the way in which it thinks about culture and he's trying to get us to think about culture is distinct from the concept of culture that these elaborate. So as you were just saying, right, like this sort of anthropological approach that we get in the early part of the 20th century is, is, is as you were just describing, well, just like, look at what these people are doing. Mm -hmm. And he's got a much more sort of engaged political um, and specifically Marxist uptake of this concept. And it's an interesting one uh, insofar as it, yeah, has to do with trying to account for like the lack or absence of formation of class consciousness and the need to give an account of what's missing from political life or social life uh, that this kind of cultural account maybe will help be able to provide an answer for uh, that. Yeah. As you said, like under conditions of relative affluence, where do these like, uh, where do, where do these, these energies go? How are they dissipated? And it's interesting that he's always insisting on the way in which culture and cultural practices like are and have to always remain contradictory and localized in this sort of conjunctural Gramscian way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's the part that uh, that's really important to me because, you know, he's not the first person to think about culture through a kind of generally Marxian vein. But I think where what distinguishes his work on culture, at least from what I know, you know, I, I'm, I'm still fairly new to Stuart Hall. But uh, what distinguishes it is that it's not just an account of culture as an apparatus of domination. It's exactly what you just said, Gil, right? That culture is a site of contradictory and oftentimes opposing forces, some of them which might have subversive potential, others which might be useful for placating the working class, right? And so that account of, uh, of, uh, of culture, which is not just, you know, as you might find in Adorno and Horkheimer, a, you know, a, an operator of domination or a site of domination, but a more kind of equivocal site, that makes sense. Okay, are you guys ready for my stupid question? Yeah, let's hear it. Let's yeah, hear it. Absolutely. So, what is the big deal about like culture and economy? I I read this like I read Althusser last week, and I had a similar question about Stuart Hall as I did about Althusser. Or no, I had a similar reaction. My reaction was like, this seems like a problem of like 50 years ago. Like this is like a way of talking about this tension between culture and economy. And 
it's, it strikes me that one has to have a very reductive understanding of the economy in order to get this like problematic that like culture needs to be this thing that the, that we separate out from it in some way because to avoid economism, like you have to think about them in separate in the first place in order to like derive this problem. Hmm. In the same way that, like I said, Altasser doesn't know anything about the economy and therefore we're talking about ideology in this weird way mm-hmm. where ideology is the thing that starts to hold the social structure together. I just have the same thing about, like question about Stuart Hall. It's like culture becomes the thing that holds the social structure together because we can't possibly explain it via the economy because the economy isn't behaving in the way that we want it to or that we thought it should so instead of interrogating what was wrong with one's understanding with the economy and like adding texture normatively and indeed culturally, it becomes like, like I never feel quite satisfied with either of these accounts. Like, and which do, like, and I can get into what I think is exciting about Stuart Hall, like maybe a little, but I just wanted to like throw it out there that like my problem with both authors is kind of like, I'm sympathetic, of course. I'm also just, I think it's kind of a part of the same tradition, except for that Stuart Hall is grappling with like Thatcherite England and this like turn, conservative turn and this apparent shift in conser- conservative ideology of the working class. But again, instead of being like, so it, the affluence of the working class is somehow detrimental and so then it must be like well we've kind of salt like class conflict has sort of been resolved in a certain way and it's like deeper forms so now we have to interrogate the the mindset and the cultural and then this creates the shift later for people to like take the cultural turn away from thinking about the economy entirely um which Stuart hall does not not, himself do but it does create that opening because if you stop interrogating the economy as like a live dynamic, as a social practice that has its own cultural things, then it becomes like the economy isn't the problem. Culture becomes the problem. And you get this split. Um, yeah. Can does that I, make sense? I mean, absolutely. as a question. Yeah, and he's open about struggling with that culturalist tendency, right? He calls it the tendency mm-hmm. toward culturalism instead of a cultural analysis. Yeah. And the same thing can be said about Althusser, like the turn to ideology becomes like post-structuralism later. So I just hmm. see like there's parallel tracks hmm. here. Happening. So, yeah, I think for Stuart Hall, I think, you know, it, it, it would help, I you know, for me, what is the specific question he is trying to answer? And it seems to me the turn mm-hmm. towards culture is less about, you know, class conflict is resolved. So we also, um, well, some of us read, I don't know if all of us did, so I'm not trying to put, put anyone out, <laughs> but I'm, I also assigned this essay called Political <laughs> Commitment from the ni- 1966. Mm-hmm. And there... Yeah, he, by the way, thanks for assigning so much okay, reading. Here it is so there the- i did do my homework <laughs> by the way i read it all gil i don't know about you wow i, oh. I didn't i don't know how to read okay <laughs> your, your co-host <laughs> ladies and gentlemen there was a joke in the the group chat where i for some reason felt the need to blow up gil for assigning so much and at least i didn't and while i was doing the reading today i realized i had signed over 200 pages so that was a little bit embarrassing <laughs> for me i was like who did this it was me um, but it seems to me that Stuart Hall, he's doing this because, as you said, he's grappling with Thatcherism. But this question is, so why did the le- left miss? 
What did they miss? What, how weren't they speaking to the working class to organize them, to get them to, to uh, understand and represent to themselves? And the class conflict didn't go away. And so in Political Commitment 1966, you know, he's so hard on the Labor Party because they have completely separated mm-hmm. the, out the question of you know, contestation, taking a stand for amelioration, pragmatics. And also, Gil, I thought you enjoyed this. You know, he makes fun of polling. And all of that. Oh my God! Yeah, I was oh, reading yeah. that. Okay, so there's this bit where he talks about where he sabology. dunks on where he dunks on Nate Silver. Yeah, and I was like, is Will explicitly trying to bait me into yelling about Nate Silver on this podcast? Because <laughs> what I is have your been... beef with Nate Silver there. again? So I mean, like, almost... I feel like you keep dropping these little like tweets. Like you and Nate, you're going back and forth with Nate Silver, but um, let's I... understand this better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that actually I, it was really great to read this these lines by Stuart Hall because he almost exactly gets my problem with this way of thinking about politics. And so it's in the co- political commitment essay. Actually, the other thing to say about that essay, too, is like he, you know, the specific references are to like, you know, mid 60s uh, United Kingdom but like he could also just be describing like where we are today in so many ways. And, and for precisely the sorts of reasons you were just saying, right, like noticing the sort of failure to treat in actual political terms the sort of issues that are getting co-opted as like non-political cultural ones that we see in like the Democratic Party as this like apparatus for diffusing class antagonism. Um, and so but the thing about sophology, uh, th- I have like an entire quote pulled here, but it's about like the what's the function of this sort of um, uh, pseudoscientific quantitative approach to registering and measuring public opinion as itself like an important political uh, uh, an important political praxis. And so like what we end up with is, as he puts it, like, you know, increasing sophistication of method, but each methodological advance has its ideological content, right? And so, like, what do we think we're doing when we develop a new methodology for collating the data sets of the results of various polling sites throughout the country and then say, okay, that's what we are. That's who we are. That's where we are. This now sets parameters on what we can take seriously as possibility. Whereas, as he points out, what's missing is any idea of praxis, right? And so just for instance, if it were the case, it turns out it's not the case. If it were the case that um, we took all these polls in the U.S. today and found that the majority of people did not like or did not support something like Medicare for All, like the cephalogy line is, well, then we don't go for it, right? Because it shuts down uh, any idea of transforming the state of consciousness or of political public opinion. It's just a sort of positivist temperature check that I think gets in the way. I mean, this is why we have all these arguments these days about like so-called electability, which are always just based on what people think they would go for if presented an option at the ballot. It's not clear to me that that represents anything. And more importantly, uh, the the point has to be to agitate for transforming this public opinion and not just like, I, I don't know, getting the word on the street about what people think they like. It just seems like a mistake to me. Um, right? I mean, so like as a quote here, uh, uh, he says, this is on page 88 in the political commitment essay, right? He goes, it's, it's fine. It's one thing to be able to test more accurately the balance of political forces at any one time. It is quite another thing to allow this technique to so dominate the scene 
that politics itself becomes a question of sampling the state of public opinion as it exists, an elaborate process of echoing back to the electorate what it already knows, sugared, of course, by effective methods of presentation and the right party image. And I was just thinking this whole time about like all these really cool graphs and charts and ways of presenting data that like the 538 people are so proud of. And I'm like, I guess that's fine. But like the point would be to shift the needle and not just like put it in a digestible form. Okay, so first of all, shout out to Stuart Hall for never accommodating himself to new labor. Respect. That's a badass. So that's a badass thing for a new leftist. Point one. Number two, I feel like what you just described is like the entirety of neoliberal politics. Like one of the reasons Stuart Hall has to start talking like this is because beginning in the Thatcher era and for Reagan in the U.S., the party of the left, so labor... Um, becomes starts becoming increasingly separated from the working class and they start like accommodating themselves to this separation. So one of the reasons today that like opinion polls are so controversial is because no one in the middle class or the at all or the elite political class or the middle class or the academic class, whatever, like the people who run the opinions of this country, no one knows what the hell working class people think. And that's a huge problem. So like, I think Stuart Hall is, um, he sees this problem. I mean, and he goes at it by way of like articulating um, some kind of, so a way of thinking about culture. But what I'm see, hearing from what you're saying is that he sees this problem and his, in his own ways, describing this problem in his kind of like theoretical language. And mm -hmm. he sees it as a political problem from the beginning, which is very, very astute. I would say, because now we're all like, I feel like it took us all like 50 years to be like, no, no, no. The problem is the left separation from the working class. Like this is the primary, there's a lot of other structural problems, but if we're going to make any progress, this is like problem number one. I think, I think that's exactly his position that, you know, the reason why we, you know, we could say um, the struggle failed is that the left began separating itself from, you know, the, the patterns of behavior, the ways of living of the working class. So it could not actually understand from within what were the desires, what were, were you know, um, the attachments, what was wanted. And I, I imagine, you know, um, I don't know very much about the people he's arguing with but you know he's definitely arguing with you know um people who are making the claim like you know something must have gone wrong in our theory because economically the struggle should have happened and he's saying as you know almost like all marxists would say that this isn't like a, a an absolute mechanism it's not like you know, uh one thing happens another thing happens socialism and so he is asking like so how did you all miss that this phenomena could occur that, you know, how did you all miss what was new about the situation? Well, partially what was new is your separation from the actual ferment of um, social practices of the working class. So you no longer, to put it rather bluntly, spoke their language. Your interests, you didn't even, couldn't even see that your interests were diverging because you weren't having, you weren't in touch. Yeah, and so, like, what's interesting then is that, like, this sort of, uh, what I'm again, I guess, polemically calling like pseudoscientific methodology uh, allows for this sort of 
uh, very savvy political class to think that it is still somehow in touch with and and registering the opinions of the of the working class, so to speak. And yet, like it's a, a distortion in in important ways. And I think again, like more importantly, mistaking the understanding of what social consciousness looks like. Um, as though that were the political project, which is to foment, to induce, to try to uh, create and nurture social consciousness. Look at the way that those things like 538 talk about identity, right? Like they talk about, you know, they they have this term that they use with demographics as destiny. And, you know, even after the last election, they're really confused by certain voting patterns because they're working with a concept of identity that is totally unmoored from material or class conditions. Well, not only 538, so, the Democratic Party is completely Democratic confused. Party. You know, yeah, uh, Democratic Party gets all yeah, of Yeah, they tips. seem really yeah. confused. And then <laughs> yeah. because they're, they're extremely confused, confused, they're like, because they're confused, then they're like, oh my God, we did so well. We're, like They have to kind of cover up their confusion on, the, on like their various mm-hmm. medias and like posture, like they've done, like their strategy worked or whatever, because they like can't explain basically anything about what just happened yeah. but and Stuart Hall like specifically points to the dangers of separating identity from what he calls the symbolic and material support of identity and, and mm-hmm. so he's you know he's quite specific about that yeah and I think also what he gives us to understand is also and I think this is so important I always try to talk to my you know students about this what might have worked yesterday doesn't mean it's going to work today. And so mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, let's say in the United States, people um, essentialize or homogenize the civil rights movement. They're like, so black people are universally on the side of either the Democratic Party or saving the country or anything like that. And But, you know, there isn't this, you know, conjunctural analysis of, so there might be mm-hmm. multiple forces at play that you need to organize in order for this to become a coherent um, political block. But instead, you mythologize identity as if political positions naturally follow, and you haven't paid attention to the way the terrain has shifted. And so it seems to me what Stuart Hall is trying to say is, you know, it's actually important. So I wonder what you all think about this. There is, you know, in a way we're talking about Stuart Hall generally, but he's so into specifics, and he's trying to say Mm -hmm. that your theory needs to be able to adequately understand when it's being, you know, really concrete and specific, when, you know, it, you know, is making sort of, you know, it's offering sort of general concepts to allow you to understand your way around. But it seems to me he's constantly saying, well, you know, we need to pay attention to, I have it written down here in another uh, uh, of his essays. Um, It's the uh, Gramsci one. We need to understand the historical conditions of theoretical production. And that means that you have to constantly reassess and return to your context if you're going to understand what a productive or progressive political practice would be. Yeah, and this is why, like, one of the reasons why he's so drawn to Gramsci, right? He says, listen, like, Marx gave us an analysis of capitalism at its highest level of analytical abstraction. But what he, what he seems to be drawn to about Gramsci is that Gramsci is such a kind of uh, his problematics are so specific to his particular social, political, historical conjuncture, right? National unity of Italy, creating a party, a communist party, which is capable of actually, you know, exercising effective power, uh, the relationship between the South and the North of Italy, and all of these very specific questions which animate Gramsci's work. And which he says, like, look, it still gives us a lot to draw from for, you know, 
conclusions we might draw about other contexts. But you know what's what he what I what he finds like so compelling in Gramsci's work, and I and I like the way that he frames this relationship between Marx and Gramsci, right? One at the heights of analytical abstraction, and the other at so to speak, right, the lowest level of kind of regionally culturally, historically specific analysis of like, what's at stake here? What are the various social alliances at play? How do we actually leverage, you know, a working class party when it's up against these particular obstacles, specific obstacles that we face, you know, uh, both at the level of the state, civil society and the economy. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I like the way he frames that, that kind of comparison between highest level of analytical abstraction and then kind of on the ground, you know, social analysis. Yeah. Yeah, he says in one of the lectures uh, that uh, because he's such a conjunctural thinker who's like so intimately concerned with like precisely these like actually existing relations of tension and ideological kind of conflict and contestation that Gramsci sometimes looks too concrete. Like, is Mm. it like transferable even? Yeah, yeah. Can we even learn from something that's that wedded to a particular analysis? And so he wants to draw from that a kind of uh, methodological approach, which he thinks is different than what he sees going on in Althusser and in Poulantzis' reading of Gramsci, which he thinks is just trying to like, all right, well, it was too concrete, so let's like make it abstract again. Let's like re-theorize Gramsci. But that kind of misses the point and power of his specific kind of analysis, mm-hmm. which is what he's trying to, I think, trying to repeat um, in, cer- in these various contexts, like the... Uh, the essay, one of the other essays that we looked at was "What is this black and black popular culture?" from 1992, and uh, I was thinking about what you were just saying, Will. This like uh, uh, the reification of these like identity categories. Like he says, yeah, you end up when you start thinking that there is a kind of destiny to any particular uh, mode of identification that like you can only go astray right like and so the specific examples he's giving and thinking about are um, you know would we assume why would we assume uh, uh, that there is an automatically either uh, progressive or even specifically anti-racist character to uh, black identity formation in you know early 90s uh, British uh, social life. And it, here's a quote he says, you know, it naturalizes and dehistoricizes these differences along whatever axis we're looking at, right? Ethnic, racial, gender, class differences, fi- naturalizes and dehistoricizes them. And he says, quote, once we've fixed it, we're tempted to use, quote, black as in itself sufficient to guarantee the progressive character of the politics we fight under that banner. As though that's like the only axis along which we might uh, register something like the difference between progressive or reactionary, or also that like yeah that it would have this sort of automatism to it at all right that it would automatically go in the direction of a progressive uh, bent if not for these other complicating contradictions because again he thinks mm-hmm. it's always overdetermined mm-hmm. right in specific mm-hmm. subject positions. I want to, you know, return to I, what I take to be kind of um, the second part of Lillian's question, which is whether Stuart Hall opens the door to the, you know, culturism. I think in our day, we endlessly, especially if you're on Twitter, see the kind of, you know, the fight between what's probably pejoratively called cultural politics and what's understood mm-hmm. as real politics and I take cultural politics to be about politics of representation the idea almost the idea that we want a ruling class that looks more like us rather than Mm -hmm. actually we might (laughs) not want you no one ever actually admits that though actually holds that position right 
<laughs> no, I think people do, but oh. no one will. I mean, I'm happy <laughs> well, to accuse no, but somebody Hillary of holding Clinton that position. But I, I don't think people admit it. I think it's kind <laughs> of like we all know it's there, but nobody wants, no one wants to, like, to say own it. it. Well, Clinton yeah, promised I'm, gender parity on the Goldman Sachs board, though. So, oh well, <laughs> apparently some will Super. admit it. <laughs> so, my well, that's why that's why the Democrats won, right? They had such a well balanced ticket: old white man, young mm-hmm. black woman. You get you get the whole field of forces. There you go. Democrats crushed it. Yeah. And this clearly was satisfying to the general population. So. Demographics yeah. are destiny, Lillian. Yeah. As, <laughs> just, look as at we South, know. just look at Southern Texas. Full circle. Wow, Full circle. Too, too soon, Owen, too soon. Hi. You? <laughs> sorry, You're going to hurt sorry. their feelings. Well, but my question is, is this. So if we like, you know, push deeper into the, kind of the, the, the weeds of what Hall is saying, is one, how is what he's saying not cultural politics in terms of mm. how is he not just talking? I assume he's not. How is he not just talking about, well, we need you know, better representation? And so in some ways, I, I wonder if we have developed a different understanding of culture than Hall has um, back in the 1980s. And two, I'm wondering what you all think about what I, I guess Hall implies the relationship of the ruling class to culture. Like, you know, so does the ruling class make use of, of culture to form? And I think this is more in the Gramsci essay, you know, more of um, a political block rather than it's just mm. one class ruling. And so what I take him to be saying is, you know, holding together a rather contradictory coalition in order to secure what he calls hegemony, which isn't strictly mm-hmm. coercion, but almost the mm-hmm. me reductively setting the terms of the debate. You know, yes, being exactly. like, yo, here's the bandwidth you can operate in. And so I guess like I kind of want to address that worry because I think a lot of people when they hear culture, they're hearing cultural politics in the pejorative sense. And I'm wondering, does Hall get get out of that or uh, does he not? So one thing that's interesting is like in none of the pieces that we looked at, which is like, you know, spanning 20 years of his like theoretical career, like he almost never uses the language of representation, which I think you're right. Like is like this like way in which we tend to automatically assume is meant by uh, cultural politics or uh, like yeah this like culturalist turn like he's not talking about that at all as far as I can tell I think it is much more like you said like and this is one of the other things that he gets from Gramsci has to do with uh, hegemony and so like uh, by which we mean I think like you said like setting the terms of the debate like hegemony isn't necessarily about just like clamping down on all possible forms of thought but rather uh, establishing a dominant common sense right Uh, Mm -hmm. the, the frame within which discussions happen or are possible what the sort of norms of intelligibility are and that's the level at which I think he's right to say things like that. Um, you know, we can have these like local uh, victories uh, or like, you know, make small steps in a, ver- in a progressive direction. But we still will need at a certain point in order for this to be lasting and effective to develop a counter hegemonic sort of way of thinking and to sort of try to make that part of the political struggle itself. He writes, this is on... Uh, from like the last, uh, I think the last lecture in the 1983 
uh, book. It's on pages like 189. He says, quote, while cultural politics and ideological struggle are not sufficient in themselves to restructure the social formation, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. there can be no sustained establishment of counter hegemonies without their articulations in culture and ideology. Cultural politics and ideological struggle are the necessary conditions for forms of social and political struggle. And so like, I don't, you know, none of that sounds at all about like, you know, these questions of like, you know, representation of minorities or anything like that, or even like the sorts of uh, political uh, struggles that get cashed out sometimes, I think wrongly as cultural ones, say, for instance, over uh, the right to abortion. This has to do with the development of uh, ways of thinking and of expressing what it is that's being demanded that are broadly foreclosed by the kind of the the dominant field of uh, the thinkable, so to speak. I mean, what's crazy is I'm not even sure we have that now. Like, I don't <laughs> talking about abortion seems like something that isn't like even like the Democratic Party has like given up, you know, so like I didn't hear anything Completely. about abortion in this particular election. So, but I want to make a point with that because mm. So I feel like Stuart Hall, like these readings made me think so much about just the difference, the continuity and difference between his political moment and ours. Mm -hmm. So to me, the reason that it seems really viable to kind of like start to emphasize culture, not because I, I really don't think it's because he wants to leave the material conditions behind. That's so not his agenda. Mm -hmm. But it seems viable to kind of start this kind of cultural critique in this area of inquiry, both because he feels like it's been neglected, but because the new left created cultural space. And he sees it as a terrain, like a, mm -hmm. a frontier, if you will, um, of some kind. Like in 2020... I feel like we can't have an honest conversation about social policy to save our life. Like, like we, like we just had a president presidential election that was a referendum on, on, um, like racist rhetoric and culture. Like we didn't have a, a, a political decision to make about people whose policies we preferred. It just wasn't mm -hmm. like, nobody knows what the only thing anyone knows about Joe Biden, aside from the fact that he, that he did whatever Obama did is that like, he it's isn't Trump. Trump, and that's all he ran on. And every single time a policy was introduced, he said, I'm not going to do that. It was like a purely negative Medicare for all. Definitely not going to do that. Oh, not going to talk about abortion. Not going to talk about anything that Green people actually want. Not He says he'd supported a $15 minimum wage, but he didn't run on that. He doesn't support the Green New Deal. I mean, like we're literally in a political moment where there is this in insane resistance to having a discussion about policy mm. and so political decisions are being made um based on culture or at least that's what it see like it's hard to see what else is going on is my point so like in the moment that he's talking about which is like where the working class is like the intellectual class and the media pundits and the people who drive public opinion in the public sphere they're becoming separated from the working class he's like we have to try to understand culture better. This makes sense. In 2020, we're fully separated from the working class. I mean, like, we're middle-class people for the most part, and we're having cultural debates with the top 20% of the population, and clearly we don't know what anyone else in the country thinks. This is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which, like, being preoccupied with culture can obviously become self-referential, which isn't to say that, like, 
it's not possible to do working class politics or to ha talk about material conditions simultaneously. But the political moment that we're in puts into question, like you have mm. to ask what, what is one's priorities? Is this particular set of priorities working mm -hmm. for us? Does that make sense? Yeah, I wonder if in this particular moment in the United States, in you know, um, almost a really sort of reactionary way, culture has become bourgeois culture. How culture was you know understood mm -hmm. as the very best of us. I'm thinking of you know, kind of like what Du Bois thinks culture is in at least your know, early Du Bois, which is, is you know, the what the refined, it's what the the very top do and what people do on the lower tiers, well, who knows? We'll probably learn from like books like uh Hillbilly Elegy and all of that, which is supposed oh, to give God. you some insight <laughs> into you know what's happening in Appalachia. Yes, I I am dunking on that book. And so it seems <laughs> to me that I wonder if you know if Stuart Hall were alive today, he would, you know, and this comes up also what he thinks Gramsci is saying that, you know. What is happening is actually it's a very weak culture because it's not elevating the debate to actually, you know, understanding. So what are the policy differences? He even has this line uh, in the lecture somewhere. And I think, Gil, you like this line, which is, you know, culture should be able to draw a line of fire in the sand. To be able to, you know, say, you know, this is the point of contestation. But instead, it's almost as if culture has become so expensive expansive and dominated by a certain set of social interests where culture is about you know having more people on tv that look like x or using the right lexicon or idiom rather than so how do the the millions and millions of people in this country how do they speak about these issues how is it impacting them but it's like we're in an echo chamber and so culture has like almost completely cut ties with the political and economic sphere and us as intellectuals are in many ways caught within it does that sound right and so mm -hmm. perhaps what Stuart Hall is trying to, to well, no, he, he's very specifically about the 1980s, right? It's a very different political moment. And so maybe the question's different. Well, does this have use for us now? Or is this, or is this terrain lost in some sort of way and we have to go searching elsewhere? Because it seems you're right. Stuart Hall saw there's like this new terrain that's being opened wherein we can start having you know, different fronts of struggle that can you know, get different blocks of people organizing together to push back. But now, if like whenever you say culture, you're already caught in this sort of, you know, region of discourse that is rather ineffective, does that mean that we just leave it, give up on it? So I was thinking about this in the context of like um, uh, the sort. So I was thinking about like counter hegemonic cultural struggle right. or mm. ca cultural politics as the sort of attempt to create a counter hegemonic mode of thinking. Um, and and I think this is part of why, and maybe you all have a, a different read on this than I do, this is, I think, part of why so many people, like myself included, and folks on the left were as excited as they were about the kind of challenge presented by the Sanders campaign, right? Because what that was about, I mean, what that wasn't about, right, was like, so, so to speak, elevating the culture of like working class people in the country, but rather contesting the very framework within which uh, people make sense of what's at stake in these political arguments, right? And so, like, 
uh, like the way in which the Democratic and Republican parties are both absolutely just, you know, two wings of the pro-capitalist American party, right? Like the sort of challenge made by someone like Sanders and a lot of the, you know, young DSA people who continue to just like, you know, win elections and get people organized and working um, is that they have a different set of actually policy-driven prescriptions and thoughts about what the material organization of social life should look like. And that, for, I mean, as long as I have been alive and longer than that, was just totally absent from the whole of political discourse in the United States. Um, and so this is the sort of thing that I think he has in mind when he talks about uh, this kind of um, cultural politics being a condition for the possibility of like a political struggle, not that it is you know to invert our old bad superstructure base model and say, oh now the economy follows from repre cultural representations in some way, but rather that like uh, there needs to be the formation of a new way of think a different way of thinking than the one that is hegemonically dominant, especially under like you know what for a long time looked like the total closure that like neoliberal capitalism presented mm -hmm. um, can I oh and sorry do you look like did you want to say something no no go ahead I um I was listening to this New York Times, the, the Daily, the New York Times podcast. I was listening to this episode where they interviewed this Pennsylvania voter who was going to vote for Trump. Um, and there was this one moment that really stuck out to me that it, it, it just spoke very loudly. I mean, there's lots of things that were said in the 30 minutes that they talked to this person. But there's the lead interviewer guy, and then he's got his like journalist sidekick. And the lead interviewer guy is talking to this particular voter. He's asking him why he's supporting Trump. Um, fast forward a little bit, this, the sidekick asks him in this obviously disdainful way, like, don't you care that he's a white supremacist? And the reasons that this, um, voter in Pennsylvania, he's a white guy, he says, look, like, I just feel like everyone has gone too far with that, that, that whole thing. Like, I just, um, I don't have any problems with anybody. Like, I get along with my neighbors. Like, there's this black guy. I go back and forth to work with him. We get along fine. Like, I don't, there's no problem. And there's a way in which, like, I listened to that, and the, uh, the, the disdain just, like, dripping from her mouth was, like, crazy to me. Um, mm -hmm. And then I had to, like, I was like, but I reacted to that, too, because, like, in the, dis the discursive universe that I'm a part of, just being like, oh, well, I know black people, and I get along with them, like, in this kind of, like, mm -hmm. We go to work together. Like, that's not anything that, like, anyone is... Like, everyone just assumes, like, that in itself is racist. You know what I mean? But... And, like, objectively, that might be true. But this is his way of expressing his understanding of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and he just doesn't see what this interviewer saw or what I have been, like, educated to see or trained mm -hmm. to see. I mean, like... And so the question is, like... There, there's this um, cultural way of expressing things like I know people I don't have a problem with them and that is not going to satisfy mm -hmm. the cultural elite um, but how else is he supposed to express himself and like I just thought there's something really off here like like and this is this is the New York Times podcast everyone is hearing this um, and so like there's this way in which like 
the interpretation of culture itself can become very elitist, which isn't the same thing as saying that what he's saying is somehow satisfactory. Like that is just like good enough. Like that's where we want to end up in the world Mm -hmm. is people being like, I don't have a problem with people. You know, we would prefer to like, (laughs) we want a little bit more. Do you see? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We'd we'd prefer like (laughs) actual justice and equality and friendship and respect. And that's clearly, um, not like necessarily what he was saying, but at the same time, there's this tension between these expectations of these New York Times interviewers and this dude who just was not on their register and because he wasn't ashamed of not being on their register, he wasn't trying to be. There was clearly this like co- like epistemic break between these people and I thought it was fascinating. You could hear it over the, the interview. Uh, I was going to jump in. Yeah. But, I- okay. Oh, and yeah. Okay. Uh- yeah, no, I wonder because like, you know, the New York Times is like the the kind of cultural gatekeeper of like mm-hmm. bourgeois culture, one of the major cultural gatekeepers of bourgeois culture along, you know, the dominant culture along with uh the New Yorker and and the Atlantic and those and those other publications. But I wonder if we could just like shift the focus downward a little bit to mm-hmm. something that I think interests Stuart Hall a little bit more than just like that those kind of higher gatekeeping levels of culture to the existence or the absence of subcultures and countercultures. Um, you know, like Jason Reed has an interesting take on why this we're so obsessed with generations these days, mm. uh, because you know his claim is that we lack uh, we lack mm. actually vibrant, like a vibrant play of subcultures and countercultures. So we identify with like Gen Z, okay. Millennial, Boomer, nice. uh, and our identification going back to this demographics point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, t- a thoroughly abstract notion of culture that's kind of deprived of any vitality um Mm -hmm. and so i just wonder like looking around like how right is that observation and looking around the 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 u.s today or not just in the u.s but you know is that to what extent is that true and what does that say how does that affect Stuart hall's account of culture right which he never really wants to talk about culture at that high level of analytical abstraction right he's always talking about cultures Mm -hmm. and so i wonder or has the has the has the kind of project of cultural homog- like homogenization been like thoroughly successful and has it eviscerated that that play of cultures? I don't no, think so, right? I don't but think so. but I, I I love his descriptions and or you know it's an edited volume, but uh, you know his his interest in like Rastafarian culture. If you want to yeah. talk about black culture in Britain in the eighties, like you have to talk about Rastafarian culture. If you want to talk about you know youth white youth culture, you have to talk about. You know, you have to talk about punk and how did white supremacy ska. get infused with it yeah. through in the age of thought and ska, right? And how did Thatcherism and Reaganism change the character of those movements and make them, you know, the disintegration of working class organization made those cultural movements much more racist and, and conservative. And and I'm just interested in that that kind of level of analysis, which is more, yeah, down in down in the not the new, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up because that's the conflict, right, between the the high kind of gatekeepers of dominant culture and then ideally like a vital play of subcultures and countercultures and i'm just wondering what what you guys think is is the state of play as it were with that right now okay so you've given me the opening to talk about my sort of uh pet peeve and it is about how often granted i'm not on all of of twitter and all that but i am firmly ensconced in what's called left twitter which is how to talk about black political behavior in the south 
and how mm. often, Ooh. you know, I think it's deeply misunderstood. You know, it's usually so these black people in South Carolina, they save Joe Biden's campaign. It's either one because James Clyburn, this you know representative down there, duped all of these older black people into doing that. Or yeah. these people just don't know what's good for them. And I hate that because we wouldn't accept talking about that way of other sectors of, you know, working class black people and all of that. And so attending to the fact that, you know, there is no homogenous, you know, black South, but there is a lack of attention to detail. One, to the history of the black church as a social form is still deeply important throughout mm -hmm. large parts of, of the South mm -hmm. as an organizing tool. That doesn't mean it's naturally progressive in any way. And certainly the black church has been captured by what we would call managerial interests, bourgeois interests, and all of that. But it seems to me you'd want to understand the history of how these people are understanding what they are doing by actually going there and finding out how they're thinking about these things. You mm -hmm. know, to find out, is it partially because, you know, a lot of these people their understanding of the United States is that the bandwidth is so narrow, you know, might as well opt for the devil you know. I don't know. Are there conservative black people? Obviously. Are there uh, black capitalists? Obviously. But it seems to me you're missing what Stuart Hall would say. You're missing a deeply fertile ground for organizing. You're already having a bunch of people in one place. You're already having them, in, in a sense, you know, talking about discoursing on the on, on the world that it seems to me that is a sort of what if we want to call it a subculture you're not going to find in the new york times at least the mm -hmm. only way you'll find in new york times is through how movies present the prevent present the black church when they're doing the new york times will MLK. tell you about they'll tell you about the democratic party's souls to the polls right that's the right. only you know there is party political engagement with those cultural sites but it's really every four basically years, the democratic yes. party every four years bussing everybody to a polling station so they can vote for a guy like joe biden yeah and I, or you'll get like a or you'll get like a a, a, a a moment of like pseudo cultural analysis in the new york times where they, they send one of their intrepid uh oberlin uh, educated <laughs> reporters to like a, a an impoverished area that went for Trump and just like interview them and be like wow can you believe how these people live and it's completely abstract yes. mm -hmm. and has nothing to do with actual understanding of like the complex dynamics within which political uh, tendencies are formed right is this in, why in these people like have diverse places is this why people have so much trouble like finding out that they're like these super radical intellectuals and yet there are still black people who don't agree with them and then they their like minds get kind of blown mm -hmm. by that fact? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do feel like that's happened. Like people who are like very on the left and like high intellectual spheres, like anytime like like working class black people or people who are just not plugged into their circuit, like just don't agree with them they have to really like try to explain it in this way that i find like extremely neurotic and weird well look at that, like, it's just that they neurotic can't, like, yeah the neurotic frenzy right like now it's, like, like it's like, like it like like the facts seem to start to embarrass people but they had mm -hmm. thought that they had constructed this like very sophisticated like cultural analysis of black political life so like how could it be that people just don't see it my way so then you have to like mm -hmm. yeah yeah, look at look at Joy Reid's uh, like you know neurotic Whoa. breakdowns about uh, on on TV about uh, you know how it's possible that Trump increased a little bit of his share of the of the of like the vote amongst black men or amongst Latinx men and you know and it's not just I don't mean to single her up but she but it's you know there's they have those panels on MSNBC where they just are 
really, really struggling What's the trying deal to make with sense black of what the people? hell just... Yeah, it was, <laughs> I thought, like, yeah, they all agree, right? Like, what, what is going on here? And so, yeah, and um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Owen. Um, I, you know, I just I get ahead. really animated by these panels. No, no, no. And the, the, yeah, yeah. the <laughs> endless, the endless questions. It's like, what are black people thinking? Oh, why, man. you know, why aren't, you know, black men voting at the same levels of black women? Well, there are material reasons you can give for that, you know, disproportionately mm -hmm. a lot of them lost their voting rights in the prison system and all of that but it turns them into this homogenous group that you know you have mm -hmm. no sensitivity to so what are the balance of forces going on there and there's no ideological struggle to win win that over you know, so, you know so, Jason jo Jason Johnson's one of the guys who's always on those panels too. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but and, you know he was the guy that that attacked Nina Turner and uh, Brianna Joy Gray and the you know a, a number of the black women oh, yeah. that were working on Bernie you know that were leading and you know, parts mm -hmm. of Bernie Sanders' campaign, and he said that they're like from the island of misfits of black women or something something oh, you know just incredibly that. stupid. Yeah. But oh but yeah, that clearly, yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not I sure mean, what like, you make of that, but. That, no, yeah, making ahead. sure that like black leftists like don't like are silenced is like a big yeah. part of this like project mm -hmm, exactly. by the liberal elite in any case like exactly. like Brianna Joy Gray has to be you know she's not invited to speak on MSNBC or CNN like never like n neither is Nina Turner none of these people will ever be invited and so and then like Adolf Reed had a conflict with some people in DSA and then like it made the front like the New York Times in this like very negative and suspicious way mm -hmm. and so like anytime there are black leftist like people who are um you know just like not fitting into this like particular cultural box of like liberal ideology it's like very important to silence them and I find it and the reason I thought about that mm -hmm. is I was thinking about the people like leading Bernie Sanders campaign and then I remember when they just came after him for like not caring about like black voters, not mentioning race often enough. And like there, there was like this whole spin on his campaign. And I remember thinking, what is going on here? Like no other candidate is yeah. being accused of this. And there's yeah. actually like a broader multiracial coalition for this candidate than like any other candidate so what is happening here? And then it really relies on making sure that like ideological plurality like doesn't emerge, which yes. really stifles political debate because yes. it puts us in a position where we like can't have a conversation about policy because now it's like if you want redistributive reform, like if you want wealth redistribution, well, you clearly don't care enough about race. And then it's like, well, ask the people who think it's both. That would be interesting mm -hmm. for you to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was, th I was thinking in this context about like what some of the things that Hall says about hegemony, yes. um, like he says things like hegemony is some is not a given state of affairs. It's a process mm -hmm. and it's something that's hard won and needs continually to be like uh, enforced and reinforced and its conditions need to be reproduced. Mm -hmm. And so like and one of the things that he says, and I forget in which piece he says this, but that like the. Uh, part of the part of the problem that he's identifying again in the 80s and we could talk about whether or not this is still the case today is that like the right certainly understands this right and yeah. they get that like the mm -hmm. the the project totally. requires the continual establishment and re-entrenchment of these hegemonic sort of as he puts it mastery over the discursive terrain yeah. and like the the modes of imagining or understanding what's happening in politics in a way that the left either doesn't understand or isn't doing as good a job at right 
Um, and yeah, yeah. I also just wanted to read um, a real uh, a real quick quote from the 1983 lectures. Quote: The aim of a theoretically informed political practice must surely be to bring about or construct the articulation between social or economic forces and those form of politics and ideology which might lead them in practice to intervene in history in a progressive way. End quote. Nice. And mm-hmm. so I think you know, so much of what you know I was raising, like you know, obviously there are black leftists out there, but what you know, Gill and Lillian are talking about is that there's this constant suppression of this i uh the you know we you know the way that i think hall would put it this um emerging sort of you know cultural politics which again is not like the cultural politics you know we're we're critiquing but what has happened is that the right has been so good at setting the terms of the debate that even sometimes like the left adopts those terms and tries to like you know work from within them rather than actually you know doing what he calls you know with articulation establishing a new common or good sense actually you know is his precise mm-hmm. term for it. common sense is like the incohate ideas that are kind of floating around they're contradictory but you know intervening bringing those together to um establish a sense of something new that rejects the ways of framing the political issues that came before and then things start to i would imagine start to crystallize differently medicare for all is no longer this crazy thing a green new deal which is a a jobs program again is not outside the bounds of you of the of the respectable and i imagine it can help you to start to win more people over to it and i think that's so much what hall is Mm -hmm. about how do you start winning a critical mass of people to be on board with this and you don't shaming them shaming them isn't the best strategy to (laughs) for accomplishing that it turns out yeah unfortunately yeah that's really unfortunate shamed no people don't well i I like i like being shamed but that's like a personal problem yeah you know that that is definitely not political (laughs) not political it's not politics i know the personal is political but i think not Not all personal is political But no, but that's you're exactly right, Will. And this is the sort of thing that I was like, it was shocking to me to read Hall talk about this in 1966, where having uh, spent a couple of pages in the piece, like outlining what he takes to be the kind of dominant or hegemonic ideology in the United Kingdom. And it's what we today like call things like neoliberalism, right? Depoliticization, uh, kind of like a cult of technocracy. Uh, what at the time he's talking about is like modernization. It's anti-conflict. It's uh, it's like for compromise. You know, short-circuiting uh, political movements. This like obsession with process uh, over substance or like actual content. And then a couple of pages later, he's like, "Yeah, it would be bad enough if that were just like what the conservatives thought, <laughs> but also the Labour Party thinks it and yeah. enacts it, and even some far-left people think it and enact it. And this is the sort of thing." That like again, like reading that in 1966, I'm like, is he talking about us right now? Like again, like you watch a debate between a Republican and a Democrat, and I'm like, I, I could if I squinted, I would think it was one person. It's it's bananas. Yeah. Um, oh, and just one thing I want to say uh, real quick, because I I feel like I've been talking so much, but you know, it's another thing in the the political commitment essay that I think is so important, which is we need to resist for him the privatization of politics where you know um uh personal grievances are reduced to um a dis disaggregate instances so i, I imagine he's talking about things nice. like you know, um you're not getting paid enough but also your water is about to get shut off and you don't understand why uh you were fired or something like that and it's made to seem as if these are disconnected things 
that are happening rather than mm-hmm. no these are eminently political concerns that one can find their roots in the the organization of social society and so i also think that it, you know he's arguing for a form of ideological struggle that will be able to take what seem to be disconnected um, worries, gripes, struggles, and all of that, and giving them a frame by which they are, you know, actually articulated together, and by which you can say, "Oh, so this is what this is about." Rather than, "Why do I have? Why am I struggling for health care? Why does my landlord suck?" All of that. And if you're not furnishing that, then it can seem as if, "So I'm going to do these ad hoc piecemeal things to address those individual things while keeping everything fundamentally the same," which in the end, does not work. Um, I feel like one of the my takeaways after reading, I mean, after listening to this conversation and the kind of like problem with cultural politics we're having right now, because is that there are no working class institutions to perver- preserve cultural memory and to develop like a counterculture. And this is a, a problem of the new left. Like, I actually think I'm of the developing minority position that. Um, the new left has, um, been culturally vindicated in a way that has precluded a a sober analysis of its political shortcomings. And what I mean by that is it's accepting of its separation from the working class because that starts to emerge after the 1950s, the industrialization gets going. So by the time the, the, the 60s develop um, on college campuses, and there are exceptions to this, I mean, like, for sure. But, I mean, the the kind of cultural politics that emerge um, are not connected to working-class institutions, many of them, at least, particularly the anti-war movement. So, like, there's um, this ossification of culture and ideology within a certain milieu. And actually, I've, I've started reading about SDS in the 60s, the Students for a Democratic Society, straightforward hostility to workers and like frustration with their, with their cultures and with their concerns. Um, their so-called so, backwardness. Yeah, their backwardness. Their, the kind of same problem Stuart Hall is talking about, this apparent conservativeness. Um, but this is the, the, the kind of cultural tension we're having that the class that what is actually going on is a class politics uh, like and and the denial that it's has a class character um and i think what gets lost in all of this is that without working class institutions to like of many kinds both trade unions is an obvious one but when i think about an institution that was very successful i'm like thinking about the spd in germany before um the 1920s. So like it was the first social democratic party. This was a whole lifestyle for people. They had sports clubs, they had libraries, they had teams. I mean, like we're talking, we're not talking about this like reductive economistic tradition. We're talking about people who really were lively, attuned to the cultural needs of their constituency. I mean, I'm actually not even sure there's been anything like it since then, but it's, it's a very fascinating thing to read about. And Without these kinds of institutions, there's nothing for like the middle classes and the elite to respond to because people, because these are ways in which people articulate their interests and needs. Um, and so right now there's like no channel, you know, and so it's easy. So if you talk to talk about 
you know, we need to redistribute wealth in this country. It's easy to be like, well, that's reductive or, or something like that. But if you think about what we, it would actually take to get from point A to point B, we're not talking about just like an, an economic process. We're talking about people organizing themselves, um, getting to know themselves and each yeah. other and articulating their interests. And that can't be just an economic phenomena. It's a social phenomena. And I think it's a mistake that the new left made to start thinking in this dualistic way. And what I got out of reading these essays was I think Stuart Hall, I think he saw that and he's trying to resolve it at the same time that he's still just in conflict with it because he's still trying, he's, he's trying to push the new left project forward um, on, on very now very unfavorable terrain. That's so interesting. And I was thinking, so I was, one of the things that I was like worried about or like a, a worry that I kind of was in the back of my mind as I was like encountering Hall's thought uh, here and coming out of Gramsci uh, is like this question of like one of the critiques that was made for a long time um, of various sorts of like leftist and progressive political movements was the sort of inadequacy of this idea of consciousness raising. Mm. And there's like a whole series of reasons why we might think that that's an inadequate project. And I think it, like he's very explicit about how part of what he finds so appealing about Gramsci. Um, and I was also thinking too, Will, about what you were saying before, like the, the need to develop a, like a, a totalizing worldview to unite these disparate features of what are otherwise disconnected political projects or problems. And like, I think this is part of why Hall is like from start to finish, just like, no, I'm a Marxist and I'm doing, uh, you know, a maybe more sophisticated uh, version of Marxist analysis precisely because it provides uh, a comprehensive theoretical and political frame within which to make sense of all these different things. But one of the things he likes so much about Gramsci is that Gramsci just denies uh, that there is a pre-given political subject, right? And so for him, the interesting thing is to figure out what are the conditions for the possibility not of raising to consciousness uh, uh, a working class that already exists, right? But like, you know, and part of the, the way that like Hall will take this up, I think, is to say things like, you don't out exist outside of the mediation through cultural mm -hmm. forms uh, that sort of suffuses in a given society. So how do we go about trying to intervene in that field, not to like, educate people about what they already are, but to constitute them, to allow for their constitution as this kind of subject of, of politics or of discourse. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, like, yeah. And I think this goes back to, you know, uh, what Owen was interested with the, you know, the subcultures and all of that with like, you're know, talking about Rastafarianism and, you know, Scott, you know, obviously Stuart Hall, you know, he's very explicit. He's not saying any cultural formation is never necessarily progressive and all that, which is why he talks about how, you know, a, a, mu a form of mu rock music that starts off as very sort of working class progressive gets hijacked by, you know, mm -hmm. uh, racism and all of that. So that's liable to happen. But, you know, what I think he's trying to say is, well, look how a new social formation could emerge and you can you you can find residues of it in in music because it's not just about music i think that's what his point is you know it's not just like you know some people jamming together it's you know people talking about very real issues that are impacting their lives and being transformed by it and so it seems to me that you know what hall pushes us to think and i love um in the gramsci essay when he you know he's talking about with gramsci and althusser that there's a difference between the mode of production as an analytical abstraction to be able to say okay 
So here are the economic terms, but the, the, the it's never just the economy. Then you have to get to the what he calls what um, the multiple determinations and social formation. And from there, you can start to understand that there isn't just a pre-existing, as uh, a way to put it, subject or person waiting to be freed. There is the real possibility of a, a new arrangement of social and political life that can you know, bring about a, a, a new state of affairs. And so partially the question is, so where do we start to go looking for those emergent and residual um, arrangements so that we can you know, intervene Rather where do we start to build them? Build yes. Where do we start to build yeah. them? And yeah, which yeah. is, I guess, the question of institution. And so, I also like you. Know, where do we start to build them? But so, what would it mean to develop new institutions? Maybe you know that's you know kind of the question that I guess like Stuart Hall doesn't give us an explicit answer about. But it seems to me that institutions are are deeply important because they allow for you know uh, staying power of whatever this new subject is. It provides a home amidst the, the constant battery of the dynamics and relations of forces in the moment of crisis. But so mm -hmm. what would it mean to start an institution? I mean, so what, what are the terms of the struggle? Like, is it to say, here's a room, y'all need to get in here, talk <laughs> with one another, and hopefully you'll book another room, and then we have an institution? <laughs> Or so, what is the relationship of the people he's talking to, which is, I think, you know, um, theorists and all of that? What role do they have to play in institution making? I mean, I feel like it's very important for theorists to get comfortable being like on the out, like on the fringes of political struggle. Um, mm -hmm. I think that something un unfortunate that happened after Stuart Hall in the cultural turn was because the terrain of politics was so unfavorable. And again, the separation from ordinary people that people experienced, which is not what the, like the new left did experience that separation, as I was saying, but there was still this kind of touchstone that they were referring to in, like in, in working class institutions. So there's a way in which then the new left got into the academy. They really started continuing to think about themselves as revolutionaries, which is profoundly bizarre. Like I, I read some of their work um, and I like I um, this turn towards discourse and, and language. I used to think people were um, exaggerating when they said it was a class politics because analytically there's something true as we were saying about ideologically ideology last episode just because it's an ideology doesn't mean it's not hitting on something true like I think Foucault had insights you know what I mean it's not so it's not blanket rejection but this even kind Foucault. of like <laughs> even Foucault like these this massive turn towards language and discourse and 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 so on I actually like my more in my less sophisticated moments, which are many, I think that this is people justifying their own role, like in creating social progress and struggle. Like if, if the main mm. terrain is language and discourse, then I have a lot to contribute because I'm like really good with language and discourse. It's something <laughs> I can manipulate. It's something I can critique. It's, I know a it's lot of words. I have a source right I know, next to me. <laughs> Exactly. Can you know deconstruct I mean? so, a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. So like the Can't more I critique, the more episode. I 
<laughs> it becomes this like, oh my God. Do you think I'm bad now? You wait. So like it becomes this um, like critique kind of be- is the struggle and it's very narcissistic. Um, and I, I, and I feel like I can say this cause I feel like I used to think that way. And then I got extremely alienated by academia and I re-engaged politics like I had when I was younger cause I'd been active in the anti-war movement and occupy wall street. And then actually I went harder as a political activist during grad school than I ever had before because by my second year in grad school, I was so alienated that I, I had to find an outlet outside of it. And that was like a culture shock. I'll never forget. I went to a political meeting about climate change. Somebody was giving a presentation about capitalism and climate change. I raised my hand and I said some weird shit about Foucault and neoliberalism. And they looked at me <laughs> and they were, and I could just tell people were like, okay then. And like what? the meeting like went on. I never did that shit again. <laughs> I, 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 like, I, did, I did like a 180 and I haven't looked back from that since. So... But doesn't um, yeah. yeah. But doesn't no, like Stuart Hall himself like try to give theory a more humble position than, you know, let's our kind of I don't know, academic theorists who think that by deconstructing things or by analyzing discourse that they're doing radical work. I mean, he always uses this expression which I really love mm. called, you know, the detour through theory. And he always yeah. like poses theory as something that you know, it it on its own doesn't really have a ton of agency, but it's useful to build it up as a detour through which cultural politics might go, or mm-hmm. through which political praxis might go, mm. and um, and I, I don't know. That might be one way to kind of situate theory in a way that makes it less. You know, we we can have less pretensions about its power, mm-hmm. or less pretensions mm-hmm. about its place in those struggles, whether they be cultural or political. Uh, so I don't know if you if you guys noticed that language of the detour and what you thought about it. Yeah, I like that, and I, and, I, and I did notice it, because it it seems as if he doesn't think that theory in itself is revolutionary, but he likes historians like E.P. Thompson, because, you know, he's yeah. like, mm-hmm. he he did something new. Now, all of a sudden, we're, we're talking like, oh, there was life there. And, you know, yeah. it, it's not as if E.P. Thompson created that life, but he allowed it to, you know, to break out into um, a, a, a public way of speaking. You know, the, the terms of the debate are now different. And, of course, you know, uh, afterwards you can critique how those terms are set. But if, if anything, it seems to me that, you know, what you know, Hall is saying is that, you know, what theory can win is, in a sense, you know, allowing what was there to have um, a, a new moment in the sun. So it can be, you know, it can be determined differently. And obviously, again, it's not a pre-existing, pre-existing subject, but it doesn't create out of whole cloth this new mm-hmm. society. It does not create out of whole cloth this new subject. If, if anything, it only intervenes in a process that's already ongoing, but helps it gain, you know, just a little more legitimacy, a little more, you know, um, uh, almost, you know, um, allows a little more epistemological insight into it so that it's actually a coherent thing we can start talking about and start observing rather than missing it and being completely confused as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me so much of what this is about. You know, Hall saying, you know, we need to stop at least being confused. You know, <laughs> uh, that's what I love when he uses that We quote need to clarify the forces in the conjuncture. Exactly. Clarify what forces are at work. Yes, um, that Marx quote of producing the concrete in thought. 
which is mm-hmm. you know an ever you know ongoing process, but it is not the is neither I think the beginning nor the end of politics. I like that. I like that too. I mean, I'm not. I'm constantly sort of existentially moving around on this question um, because I do. I, I don't think theory is is useless. I don't think philosophy is useless. Like I I I, I care very much about what I do and. Surely I think I'm doing something. Um, teaching classes, putting material out into the world, making arguments, you know, making um, an ideological intervention, if you will. Um, and there's plenty of room for political education if that's something you're into. So like practically speaking, um, I think my contribution was mostly just to not inflate it because I actually remember a time in which I didn't see a lot of avenues for politics and that's when I when I went to a political meeting and that space was so alien to me that's like the situation to be to be avoided like where you actually start um, creating politics in your mind and mm-hmm. even if you have a materialist approach that's the definition of idealism you know what mm-hmm. I mean so that's, that's how point. yeah so like that's it even if you think that you are responding to to like if you're uh, philosophical methodology is somehow materialist. That doesn't mean that like you're you're doing that all the time. And I think that being comfortable in your position as a theorist and kind of elevating the role of theory um, is dangerous. But like if you've got the right, if you if you find an equilibrium, then I think you should like be all in, like make your contribution. I think it that can be totally um, productive. Exactly. Well, I like that account, yeah. That about does it for us today. Thank you for listening. There are going to be new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy coming out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, etc. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And if you like what we are doing, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Thanks for listening.